Welcome to HSDF the Podcast, a collection of timely and informative policy discussions brought to you by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. In this episode, Dr. Reggie Brothers leads a discussion on how the Department of Homeland Security uses artificial intelligence to support its mission. Joining the discussion is Daniel Cotter at DHS's Science and Technology Directorate, Yemi Oshinei, Deputy CIO at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and Brian Buzzle of Red Hat. This program was originally broadcast on October 26, 2021. So it's really interesting to listen to this conversation. And I, and I think back to when um, I joined the department in 2005. And you think about why DHS was stood up in many aspects and stood up into some of the findings after uh, 9-11 on our inability to share, you know, particularly in the um, within the law enforcement you know, community among federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, all the players share appropriately. All the information was out there and aggregated. So we've made a lot of progress in that space. But data sharing, you know, data interoperability remains an enormous problem. So that's a problem that's kind of independent of AI. It's a problem that we've put a lot of effort into the last few years or last decade or more. We've gotten a lot better at. But, you know, there's a whole lot of different classifications of data. You know, this whole issue of how do you automate digital trust is remains something that we really need to tackle. But we're really going to unleash the ability for AI tools, you know, to get at, you know, these enormous data sets that are held, not just by DHS, by others. And as you do that, you know, part of it is how do you do the, um, the digital trust, you know, between systems, between machines, between the people who are going to be accessing them so that they're authorized and you can be secure. And you stay within uh, law, uh, civil rights, civil liberties, privacy. Uh, that remains a, a huge issue. I actually think AI may be part of the solution to that. There's an incredible number of permutations you know, that come out there when you start trying to combine the, um, the types of classification, even if it's uh, for official use only or law enforcement sensitive type classifications, all the derivatives of that. Try to combine that with an end user who has a specific classification or user uh, access rights that's assigned to them, along with the device that they're on and maybe the network they're on. Huge numbers of permutations and computations that need to happen to determine whether or not I can have access to a particular piece of data at some endpoint I'm on. Thinking about AI, ML, helping drive, enabling that type of data sharing, I think is something else that's very exciting, um, in addition to enabling the mission. You know, across the department, the department, you know, has a strategy. I mean, it starts with, uh, as you're talking to me about, you know, what are requirements and use cases? You know, to some degree, um, everything the department does is a potential application for AI in the future. You know, we have a long-range BAA, uh, broad agency announcement out, out there right now from S&T's website. You know, if you have ideas, you know, that AI might apply to one of those problems, you know, I encourage you to submit something. You know, we're very open to looking at how we can apply novel solutions to these things. And in addition to the requirements and use cases, you know, an AI-trained workforce is something that, you know, we also need to start building. You really have to have staff that understands AI. They don't have to be able to code it. They got to understand what it does. And if we're going to have a workforce, you know, that is working with AI, you know, that's some part of autonomy, you know, these machines are making some decisions, sending recommendations, you know, what's, what's the human role? What's the human factor? What are the decisions and rights that we're going to hold to the human only? And that's a huge part of, I think, the, um, the advantage perhaps AI have to the, uh, the department uh, to reduce that decision paralysis, you know, get people reacting to the information that humans react to the best and get out of all this rope. You know, analysis that we do to provide decision makers with, with ideas. How much can we do that faster and better using AI?
So I think training the workforce is, is going to be huge, a huge factor as well, Richie. Thanks. You brought up a bunch of things there, too, I'd like to, to pull out on. One is where you end workforce development, but, but the other is also this whole area of human machine teaming, right? Because there's been a lot of research showing that the best way to use AI is actually human machine teaming, not necessarily having something run autonomously. So, so going back to you, Yanni, I mean, have you guys thought about that, right? I mean, what is the optimal use of humans in mach- and machines in different workflows? Do you, you figure that out or is it just kind of just ad hoc? Yeah, I won't say we figured it out and have, have the master plan, but I can tell you, you know, our posture right now is as we're using ML in certain area, it's the human as, as the quality assurance as we're in our journey. So you'll have things that were normally human done by a human that is now done by machine learning. So we try to find areas, uh, pivotal areas in that decision-making process where the human now can check to make sure, is this what I expect? Should this be different? And the more we do that and the more confidence you build, then the less you'll have the human do it and move on to the other areas. So maybe it's something as simple as identifying a document. And if that works out really well, then now the human doesn't necessarily have to identify the document, but maybe check to make sure the data that has been abstracted from the document is consistent each and every time. There are no anomalies. So as you do that, you become more comfortable. I think where we can grow to is, you know, like you said, how does the human and the machine work in tandem? And those are the jobs moving forward. So I can tell you, we haven't fully gotten there yet, but that's part of our journey. I do want to touch on something that Dan said, that if, if I can highlight on a banner and wave across the country, I would do. It, it's really data sharing. So in addition to what we're doing with ML, it's as we have these data repositories, one, the ability to share seamlessly, but two, understanding the paradigm in which we share. You know, that old school data sharing trend where we use name to make sure we're using the right canonical model and make sure all the information passes forth. It's helpful, but, you know, in our instance, an applicant and a suspect can be the same person, but you're approaching and dealing with them in a different paradigm. So that data is really important that it's right and it's well understood. So as it goes through its life cycle, you know, as it changes, the model changes with it. So you know how to approach it because that causes a lot of challenges when that data comes back and forth and presents itself. So I think, you know, that's where humans can come in the loop a little more is, is to help the machine understand the permutations of the same person with kind of data at different purposes. So, so I want to pull on that some more, Yemi, um, the data sharing piece of this, because um, when I was at DHS, there was a lot of push on sharing of data for cyber instance, right? There's a lot of push on that. In fact, I think the, 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 the moderator last panel, Dr. Schneck, put a lot of time into that when she was in the department. What are some of the challenges to data sharing that you see right now? that are preventing us from actually sharing the data? One of the big ones is in in terms of data stewardship, sometimes you feel the data that you have is yours and that you cannot share. And, you know, what are the pieces of data to share? And then when you do share, how does that data fit together to make the big picture? Threat vectors are sometimes different. Our threat vector is not the same as a CBP or an ICE. So being able to overlay the data to to have a protection scheme for DHS you know, isn't it easy, easy coming from our, 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 our silos at point? And, you know, that's kind of where we lean on DHS, DHS, and to say, you know, here's what that looks like for everyone. Here's where the overlays are. Here's how you have to approach sharing that data. Something as simple as, you know, you have a, a, a landscape of folks that, you know, may need protection and they're coming in on an airport. Well, we know CBP covers the ports and, and CIS covers the folks. We just need to make sure that data overlays so that it gives you one picture. And that you'll know how to protect those folks. And it sounds easy, but it's not always as easy because it's not like the data is all in one place. It comes from such different systems, which has data in different, again, different parts of the journey. 
So we have to take the data out and put it in a place, whether it's virtual, whether it be a repository, to be able to overlay that so it makes one picture. And it's really about the pictures that we get so we know how to use the data. I think that, that's probably one of the biggest challenges outside of saying, I can't send you that data because you may not have the authority to use that data in a certain way. And that, I think we can work through that a lot easier than, than having the right paradigms. Could you chime in on that? What do, what do you see from your from your position in terms of challenges the data sharing? You've seen this for years, right? DHS. Yeah, and it, it runs from the highly technical. Is your data in a standard? Is it in any standard? You know that I can understand that you can export to me that I can break down to some of the issues. You know that Yemi spoke to. So it's just a core piece. You know, regardless of AIML, right? It's a core piece of enabling us to do the mission. So understanding, you know, what data is available how to standardize it and exchange it. And we have to make sure we're doing that in alignment with all, you know, privacy, civil rights, liberties, you know, legal framework, policy framework. And a lot is very difficult. You know, a lot of these are legacy databases, you know, going back, you know, decades and decades and decades where, you know, people even already start thinking about, you know, nimble, you know, relational and more advanced database structures. So it can be very difficult to understand what's in those data. You know, can I have a whole record? Can I just have a subset of the record? Other different classifications within that record. So the combinations and permutations of you know get get really fast. The degree to which AI can help us drive those roles and those those understandings, so we can do that with confidence, with authority, but with autonomy, you know, much much faster is going to be something we really need. In the context we've been talking about a lot, we've been talking about database of by and large maybe a bit static. You know, getting updated, maybe someone's entered uh, a new form in the system, but then you translate the issue to uh, we talked about smart cities, resilient cities, an incident happening in real time in the field, or maybe you have multiple uh, law enforcement, emergency response units, local level, you know, mutual aid coming in from multiple jurisdictions, the types of it, you know, you got video, you got text, you got language, data, you know, maybe you need to unlock parcel data, infrastructure data, who owns that data, how do I get it? You know, really complex problems when you start extending it to incident management at the local level, whether it's for law enforcement or has a response. Just understanding the data is available and how can I get it? Who would I reach out to? You know, is another problem that we really haven't solved. So uh, I might be better at seeing problems and solutions, but I think AI is going to help us with it all. But boy, it just remains one of the, the big issues. We've gotten a lot better in the last uh, 20 years or so, but there's just so much more to do with the data and information sharing space. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Brian, can, can you tell me here, right? I mean, from the industry perspective, you see at Red Hat, you see a lot of different parts, right? What are your thoughts on this data sharing issue? No, I think both Dan and Yemi highlight the fact that you can't have one database to rule them all, right? You need to have, you know, federation, you need to have, and to the point on actionable information, some of it may go away, so you only have it for a certain time period to be able to action on, right? And so I think machine learning as anomaly detection, as the ability to kind of scale out and do some form of discernment operational and information, I think is kind of the low-hanging fruit from machine learning. As you start to get into more cognitive dis- discernment and more proactive remediation, right? I think we're at our infancy and there's opportunities as we described in different use cases. Certainly data becomes more important once you start doing cognitive discernment in real time, right? To have that information available as well as whatever the security threats would be along with that. But there are additional opportunities when it comes to streaming of resources, other types of edge architectures 
that allow you to kind of federate data so you don't have the traditional dependencies of, of database technology, right, uh, as you start to scale these, this information out. But really getting that information where a model can activate on it becomes, you know, the data engineering piece of this that makes all the rest of it work, right? And so, you know, all these are all areas that we as Red Hat and other industry partners are trying to expand the ecosystem because a single partner will not solve what we're describing here, right? It's an ecosystem of folks working together. And we certainly want to be a, you know, a valid participant in that to help DHS moving forward. I appreciate that. I mean, I think what we're hearing from you is the tech is there, right, to, to do this, but partnerships are important. So let's talk about those partnerships. Because when I think about an ecosystem, these kind of innovation ecosystems, it's academia, it's industry, it's government, right? And how do you think about it? I mean, what kind of partners do, 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 does your organization have? And are there things you think that uh, the industry, academia should know in, in ways that could, could foster better partners? Yeah, so we have great partners um, in DHS, DHS S&T, we use quite a bit. Uh, we have good industry partners. I would say we, we pull in academia in, in um, scenarios. I mean, I think that could beef up a little bit because, and again, it's that breeding ground and testing ground. Academia has really a lean forward ability to do a lot of things that we wouldn't want to do as operators. So I, I think we can lean on that a little bit, especially for scenarios. I think where we can lean a little more is also productizing. Brian started to talk about something that, you know, piqued my interest. You know, we haven't talked a lot about the tooling. So you were, Brian, just describing kind of like a federated environment, lake house, ponds, or to, to some nature across different organizations that you can use AIML to activate. And so a lot of things highlighted, we talked about data engineering, there's really resource sharing aspect to that. And then there's a standardization aspect to that. Not that you're using the same tooling, but we need to understand that as organizations, we have to find that lingua franca, right? Not just for AIML and data, but for being able to connect to each other. Because now you start to highlight other things. And, and you know, if academia and, and research can get there before we do, it makes it easier for, for us to pick up and run with that. Because, you know, the life cycle of industry is a lot of things become productized. And before we know it, it's going to be easier for one of my kids to do ML on their phone as it is for a government agency to build it in an enterprise. And that's good, but that's also not so good because if we move too quick, then we'll start to introduce some of those things that we don't want to introduce. So how do we balance that out by doing collaborations with academia, industry, as well as making sure that we understand those standards? I think, you know, it's just increased collaboration. I think we got to do a better job of pulling folks together. Also, do you, do you think you get an opportunity to reach out enough to the, the smaller companies, right? The, the, the venture-backed companies, the PE-backed companies. Do, do you think you get an opportunity to do that? I think at our organization, we yeah. do because we've made it a, a, a point to do that in the past couple of years. We've seen how smaller companies are actually very, very, very nimble. So, you know, especially in niche areas. So you'll have a small company that, that that's all they do. And so that, that makes us smarter too. I would say government writ large may not do that. So I think that's something for, that the government could do. We enjoy it. Every time I meet with a vendor, a different vendor, I get smarter. And so as we start to meet with vendors, what we try to do is say, hey, did you know this vendor? They do this. How about you guys come together? One of the things our CTO is really great for doing is we have these tech talks. And so we'll have one vendor come and talk and invite all the other vendors so we have a dialogue. It's an opportunity for us to really check ourselves. Are, are we all doing the right thing? And do we find any anomalies or things that are misconceptions that now we can talk about? And all the vendors can go back and, and start to fix. Yeah, very sure. Dan, from DHS and T's perspective, I mean, I know you have a lot of partnerships. I mean, do you think that 
Are there other things you can be doing? I mean, first of all, maybe you can talk to some of your university partnerships and the way you work with, with uh, the venture back communities. But are there things that, that, that particularly in this area, that could be you could be doing differently or better? Sure. So we do have is a you know, pretty broad group of university partners through our consortiums. Again, if you research our website, they're there. You know, we do reach out and um, support research collaboratively with the National Science Foundation. Uh, we also have a group that's dedicated to industry partnerships, and we have things like prize authorities where we put out things and, uh, you know, we just ask for novel ideas. We have our Silicon Valley program. Again, you know, the long-range fraud agency announcements are out there. It's a way for us to put things out and say, these are the problems we're trying to solve. Uh, sometimes we also publish more focus broad agency announcements, you know, which may be going after a more, more narrow topic. One of the things we ever talked about, though, and it kind of maybe would get to some of these issues we're talking about, particularly around testing, you know, we do a lot of operational experimentation, you know, particularly around communications interoperability. You know, we've had tests where, um, you know, we've had hundreds of players, you know, we bring state and local federal users of technologies together. uh, And then we bring in um, private sector solutions, you know, demonstration of um, capabilities. You know, what's really out there today? A lot of times we find that industry may have a 60, 70% solution is something we need. And before we want to move forward and spend R&D dollars on it, you know, it's preferable that we understand if, you know, do we do our tech scouting right? You know, does industry have this capability? And we'll often try to get people with industry have solutions, get them some type of controlled environment, the test range where we have requirements that are established by the components and, and run real operational experimentation against those. Uh, we've done a lot of that in the, um, in the countering on the narrow system space as well. And it seems like, um, you know, we're, we're probably a year or more away from doing it, but it seems like some of the issues we're talking about today that type of operational experimentation where we're taking mission set requirements such as Yemi has in a controlled environment, working with industry to see how well their solutions uh, meet our requirements is, is probably something we ought to really be thinking about for the future. Uh, Brian, are there, from your perspective, are there any barriers to, to more effective partnerships that you think uh, DHS should be addressing? Well, I, I think part of that, and I think we talked about some of the siloed elements and, and obviously things that are fit to purpose. I think that the broad cross-agency scenarios that we're talking about is certainly an area that we can all take advantage of. As Red Hat kind of fostering AI and ML practices, we have blueprints that we create that are available that our own product engineering tests against our models, as well as we fostered what is called the Open Data Hub, which is basically a a collection of different data resources leveraging open source data tooling that most data scientists want to uh, use as part of those practices. And and I'm starting to actually have managed solutions that folks can take advantage of across different cloud environments, including high-performance solutions that may be more closer to edge. So folks can start doing this type of experimentation, right? And getting back to Dan's comment around being able to test these things in an innovative lab and, and use it, you know, the more that we can foster community about reference blueprinted data solutions, the ability to make computing not the barrier, but the advantage of having those solutions be translatable from, you know, cloud down to ground so folks can operational on. You know, we're trying to reduce the barriers as it relates to data use and how solutions are fostered from a platform perspective, thereby being able to enable the rest of what we're describing. But certainly, we have other industry partners and other SIs that are embedding these type of solutions into as well. And we're always looking for you know, great suggestions as well as you know, some of the other academic <clears throat> investments that are being done, being able to foster that along with other industry partners. So we're, we're certainly uh, committed to making sure that DHS becomes more effective from a data strategy, but then also leveraging that as part of the IMO models moving forward. 
Excellent. So I'd like to end with the last question, all of you guys. Starting, I guess, with uh, with you, Yemi. This workforce. So Dan brought up workforce earlier, probably the importance of workforce development. What are you doing with respect to workforce development? And are there things you would like people to know about how to get involved in these kind of areas? And we're fortunate that we have a, a, a very, very capable workforce. I, I, I like to say that, you know, outside of even the, the IT organization, we have some of the most savvy operators that know IT. So what we try to do is we have forums where we can informally discuss. So from our IT colleagues to our non-IT colleagues, we're always discussing things, especially AIML. And in those groups where they have requirements, we don't just talk requirements. We really talk about the entire technology so that they're aware of it. So I think that's where it starts. When the, when the business teams come over and say, I need to move faster. I need this technology. We describe it, we explain it, and, and we educate so that when they go back to that workforce, it isn't kind of like a cloak of secrecy that, you know, ML is going to come in your computer and it's going to just start controlling things. You know, that, that, that's where we get, that's where we get folks scared, but really understand. These are models. These are models that your influence helps to train. And as we go back and train it, it's trained the way you want to see the outcome. And so that, that folks aren't afraid of it. They're actually excited about it because to be quite honest with you, what we haven't really talked about is the demand. Hiring is absolutely crazy right now. We have more jobs than we have people for them. And even if we had enough people in the, uh, for the jobs, there's more work than the people that we have. So these are absolutely good tools to help us be more efficient and to kind of catch up to where we need to be. So as we explain those things, I think people become quite comfortable and, and frankly excited about what they need to do to um, get AI and ML in the workplace. Excellent. Thanks. It's a really, really interesting question. Bring with Yemi said, it's kind of a research organization, maybe thinking um, a little more foundationally. You know, as I listen to the conversation here, it really strikes me what we're talking about is intelligence in the workspace being shared between a machine and a human. You know, what does that really, really mean? You know, how much decision authority autonomy should humans let machines have? How do we figure that out? Particularly when you start talking, thinking about, you know, the interconnected world, you know, the amount of data, the ubiquitousness of sensors, you know, what's going to be the ability of machine intelligence, you know, to influence our lives and if we grant them autonomy, make, you know, fundamental decisions. How much do we want the human in the loop? You know, what does it look like? You know, this is coming at us. It's uh, distributed. It's just decentralized. I think it's going to be highly disruptive. You can just foresee this going to be ex- exponential growth of AI applications. You know, to me, you know, from a, a worker perspective myself, you know, that, that tells me I'm probably going to lose a lot of control. You know, there's going to be a lot out there. There's going to be a lot happening with data sets that's moving very, very fast. And I think it's um, going to be one of the things that we struggle with as a, as a workforce and government to, um, to keep up with it, you know, understand our role and stay ahead of it. Thanks. Brian, you get the last word. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think kind of drawing on what Dan and Yemi is talking about is as far as staffing out an effective work, workforce that, you know, understands how to cre- uh, create, you know, ethically based, open, transparent models to solve mission challenges. We really want to create a community around a platform, common tooling, so they understand the language of that enablement. Understand that it is exciting in the sense that you are augmenting maybe some of the rudimentary tasks that would not necessarily be the best for mission outcome uh, in order to make, you know, field folks as well as other folks more effective when it comes to the, the usage of these technologies. And then the more that you're using standard kind of open tooling to make that happen. It becomes less, you know, a proprietary strategy around traditional resources, but more a, a loose organization or community 
around solving these things, you know, collectively. And I think we, we certainly embrace that and want to be able to, you know, foster that as part of Red Hat's approach. Lastly, we have, you know, innovation labs as well as other, you know, industry partners that certainly can help scale some of these other areas out as folks start to, you know, understand more what they're, they're trying to do. And certainly we would love to, uh, to partner further with Homeland to understand better about how we can be more effective, not only as Red Hat, but the rest of the industry partners that we work with. Great. Listen, gentlemen, great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode of HSDF, the podcast. And visit hsdf.org for more information about the Homeland Security and Defense Forum.